0: slightly quirky episode today, the usual quick notes from the front line, and then what can occultism tell us about the Putin system? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to My View of Russia in Moscow Shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. Hello, so it's Tuesday the 20th of June, not my usual weekend recording this time. And to start my looking at the offensive, look... We also have to begin with the standard caveat that we still don't really know that much about how well we can say it's going for the Ukrainians. They're attacking along a very wide front, which basically means they they're not going to be making more than very sort of shallow movement in into the Russian lines. I mean, the Russians haven't on the whole been pushed back to their real defensive lines. But that's not a particularly big deal. I mean, there's some talk that the Ukrainians are thinking of suspending their counteroffensive. Well, maybe, but I will believe it when I see it. The point is, at the moment, the Ukrainians are still firstly testing the Russians. They're seeing if they can get the Russians to commit their reserves. The Ukrainians can redeploy their forces a lot more quickly, and they've kept most of their Western-trained and equipped brigades in reserve. So the idea is, if they can provoke the Russians to deploying their reserves, then the Ukrainians can focus elsewhere it 's a variation on the successful tactic that was used back in autumn of last year when by focusing on the city of Kherson, they got the Russians to push their forces there and then allowed the Ukrainians to then launch a second sort of kind of one two punch attack from the northern city of Kharkiv which allowed them to take a lot of territory pretty much uh, I wouldn't say quite without a fight but certainly without much of a fight because these territories were just so under protected. Now look there aren't going to be any unprotected areas in the Russian line these days but certainly if they can actually get get the reserves deployed then they will be in a better position to identify exactly which axes of attack to use, so you know we're still in this initial kind of preliminary sort of shadow boxing almost phase, even though clearly there is a lot of hard fighting and you know a fair amount of casualties on both sides and It is clear it has to be said that the Russians have learned some of the lessons I think this is it the um triumphalist narratives before the counterattack that was, well, thanks to these new kit and these sort of wonder weapons, the Ukrainians were going to slice through the Russian defences like the proverbial knife through butter. I mean, in many ways, that frankly did Ukraine no service at all because precisely it helped ratchet up expectations and it fails to appreciate that, that modern war, especially offensive operations against a well-entrenched defender that has still got a lot of forces, a lot of kit, and generals who do sometimes know what they're doing, is not gonna be easy. So anyway, we, we still wait and see. Behind the front line, well, obviously, the one of the big stories remains the whole Prigozhin versus Shoigu struggle. Now, it looks as if Putin is finally and tentatively coming off the fence in support of Shoigu against Wagner. And in a way, we shouldn't really be surprised. I mean, if one just looks at at the uh, raw arithmetic, Wagner these days has maybe 20,000 troops. I'm very annoyed, and I wrote a Twitter thread about this the other day, about the fact that we keep being told that Wagner has 50,000 troops, Well, that was based on a British Ministry of Defence tweet back in February. In other words, the point at which he had his peak number of conscript, sorry, convict soldiers. And also, they hadn't been through the meat grinder of Bakhmut. To me, this is a classic example of how a data point survives simply because there isn't a more recent one. So rather than anyone questioning, they just simply think, well, that's the last figure we had, that's what we'll use. I mean, one of my great, uh, bet Noir, was a figure that circulated for so, so long about how ostensibly 40% of the Russian economy was controlled by organised crime. A figure that really had been just sort of plucked out of the air. But again, because we didn't have a proper figure, it, it persisted through most of the 90s and most of the 2000s. And, Every now and then still crops up, but anyway, that's, that's another matter. So Wagner has maybe 20,000 troops. Shoigu has, well, I mean, okay, all told, maybe these days, about 900,000 troops. So, you know, again, if, if you're going to support one side. The point is, though, that what this uh, current spat is circulating around is the notion that all volunteers and mercenaries have to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defence and uh, Wagner is saying no, and Prigozhin is very much sort of basically saying that if Shoigu tries that, he'll be in trouble. Now, Putin supported it essentially on the basis of, well, otherwise they won't be able to get social benefits, and as we all know, the key issue is whether or not Wagner families can get preferential mortgages. The point is, though, that this is a a lukewarm support for for Shoigu, and we'll have to see if it actually survives. The deadline for this contract is meant to be the 1st of July. Well, we'll see. We'll see if anything happens. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of fudge that happens. We've seen this in the past. But otherwise, if Putin does not really come down hard on Prigozhin, then he will look weak. And if Putin does, then that may, at least in the short term, disrupt Wagner and mean that the Russians haven't got what is one of their more effective forces um, at their disposal. So that that's something to be following. Of course, at the same time, we see rather more private military companies emerging. I mean, I have mentioned in the past podcast Gazprom's three. But now, thanks to this interesting report in the Financial Times, I'll leave a link in the programme notes, that uh, Roscosmos, the uh, space consortium, is in itself backing a a company called, a mercenary company called Uranus. And I think it's noteworthy that uh, both Gazprom and Roscosmos are state organisations, but also ones that in some ways do at the moment need to cultivate the goodwill of the Kremlin. I think this is the point. It's not for me a sign that... These companies think they're heading into a, an anarchic future where they need their own private armies. Nor is it necessarily that Putin is turning around to them and saying, you will set up a mercenary company. I think it's still more in the sense of that they are currying favour or trying to curry favour with Putin, with the Kremlin. And this is the most recent way to do it. You know, Once upon a time, there were other means. Maybe you were, well, obviously... Supporting the Sochi Winter Olympics was one, but otherwise, you know, Russian sports teams and the like, or maybe sort of cultural ventures, particularly ones abroad, which could be used as soft power instruments. Well, you know, obviously, these are not the days for Russia to try and exert soft power, at least in the West, but on the other hand, raising mercenary companies. That that may be the route. What else has happened? Well, we had this uh, interesting meeting in which uh, Putin in the... uh, Fringes of the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, which was a, turned out to be a, a deeply embarrassing, disappointing, mere shadow of its former self for obvious reasons. But anyway, he sat down with a whole bunch of war correspondents, and what was interesting was particularly that some of these were war correspondents for the press, the regular media, but a fair number of them were sort of war bloggers, and it's definitely, I think, a sign of the times, both generally in the sense of. The whole media environment is becoming fragmented and, and politicians around the world, frankly, tweet more than they put out press releases, I suspect. But in particular, an awareness that for the narrative to be pushed in the most effective way, a narrative that, after all, isn't having much traction with the Russian population as a whole, well, then he needs to basically co opt the so-called Voyenkori military correspondence and i must admit it was in some ways quite an embarrassing and unedifying spectacle as putin tried to be sort of chummy and and, and down with the kids and so forth i i couldn't help but feel like in some ways it was every bit as sort of embarrassing as watching dmitry medvedev put on a leather jacket during his his presidency but if one goes beyond the rather sort of clumsy atmospherics and the sort of a very obviously carefully choreographed nature of the event it's worth noting that of the various uh, war bloggers who were there there weren't any who were closely affiliated with yevgeny prigozhin nor were there any of the igor girkin strelkov type turbo patriots you know these are all people who to be blunt even though they are willing to be critical of the war effort they they go to the front and they need the good auspices, the good offices of the Ministry of Defence to allow them to do it, or else in some cases there is a suspicion that they're trying to parlay their informal po- popularity and the message they put out into a government job. So, you know, th- th- these are people who in a way could be counted on to, to to stay on script. But still, what came out of it was, well, first of all, a very uncompromising line. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we've had people like... Um, RT head Margarita Simonian suggesting that maybe this is the time to try and freeze the conflict to to not advance any further but just simply try and hold on to what they've got and hold referenda and in particular I mean she said about the referenda in the occupied regions because after all you know why do we need people who don't want to be with us which carries with it the implication that actually one could abandon some of these territories. Now, that's, that's, that's worth noting, just simply as a sort of a straw in the wind, given that it does come from one of the chief propagandists of the Russian state. But the idea that she was doing so precisely because the Kremlin wanted to test the waters, well, that certainly doesn't seem it, because this was a very, very uncompromising presentation of the war. And in particular, I think a, a much harder line on the degree to which this is all really down to the Americans. You know, we've we've had for a long time the idea that this was a NATO thing, and you know, we know that he tends to think of NATO as America's Warsaw Pact. But it's moved from, from NATO to the Anglo Saxons, which of course means, you know, basically the Americans and the Brits, to now much more the Americans. In this sense that the Americans are not only calling the shots on the Europe, the uh, Ukrainians, but also the ones forcing Europe to support the Ukrainians. Now, admittedly, that's something that a lot of European countries, particularly the Baltics and the Poles, might well find surprising. But you know, this is very much his new line. I mean, if I can just quote a little bit. You know, but then the Americans behave very pragmatically, and everything they do is in their own interests alone. They do not care about the interests of their allies. They have no allies. They only have vassals, and their vassals are beginning to realise what role they are destined for. Well, look, this is, on one hand, classic Putin projection. I mean, this idea that you have no allies, only vassals, well, one could well think that that's actually the, you know, the essence of much of Putin's geopolitics. But also this attempt to try and say that, no, 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 the Europeans are not against us, it's just that they are essentially hostages of those nasty Americans. It's quite interesting that uh, foreign intelligence chief Sergei Naryshkin, who continues his track record of always being just behind the curve, you know, still talking in an interview in Rzeszka Gazeta afterwards about the the Euro-Atlantic totalitarian liberal elite, which is one of the most splendid kind of conflations of things. Um, but no, so you know, Putin very much I think is is at the moment, still signalling that he doesn't see any grounds for any meaningful negotiation. But also, I did feel that he was preparing the ground for potential scapegoating. Because it was quite striking, you know, whenever he talked about things that were going wrong, and, you know, there was a willingness to acknowledge that things had gone wrong, whether it's in terms of the, the Belgorod incursions or drone attacks particularly on the Kremlin or whatever else, he always adopted a position of, as if he doesn't really know what's going on, he's not really involved directly. You know, we know that he's micromanaging this war to a great extent, but when it comes to responding to the military campaign, his view is, well, I'm sure the military authorities are monitoring the situation and will respond appropriately, as if he's not commander-in-chief. When he was asked a question about, you know, is enough being done to make sure that new blood is being promoted properly within the military, his view is, well, I know that uh, Shoigu and uh, Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov are also on board because I've spoken to them about it, but on the other hand, I mean, this is a big bureaucracy, in other words, kind of, huh, well, what can you do? talking about the drone these sorry the incursions into uh, russian territory his view is yes it's unfortunate and lessons can be learned but again it's that sense of and i'm sure the people responsible are learning the lessons same with with the drone attacks constantly putting things at arm's length as if he is not the commander in chief of the military the person to whom all the different security agencies and apparatuses r- report to directly it's worth noting after all that the, these are not ministerial positions these are federal ministerial positions so in other words whereas you know various ministers re- report to prime minister Mishustin these ministers are appointed by and report to the president but still he's putting everything at arms length so i said to me that that suggested that for all his confident talk about how the the counteroffensive had failed nonetheless he's preparing the ground if things go badly he can say well it was because these people did not actually do their jobs but of course you know, as we all know things are going to go absolutely fine how do we know well because the russian press has been noting the degree to which seers and psychics from around the world have been predicting russia's victory even if not necessarily imminent one uh let's see who are Which are some of these well um sadiq afghan apparently predicted that there'll be a terrible shock. On the 17th of July of this year, so let's keep an eye on that, the mathematician made calculations and said that on this day, there would be another escalation of the conflict provoked by Western countries. And it may well affect the course of history. But it won't matter because 2025 will apparently be a turning point in the war. And from this, a new state will arise, even more powerful than the Soviet Union which will include states that were not previously part of the Soviet Union. So, watch out some of them. Then we have the blind Bulgarian seer, Baba Vanga, who, well, who's worth saying died some years back, but apparently going back through his uh, various predictions, it's clear that there will be the creation of a Slavic Union consisting of Russia, Belarus and Bulgaria, So maybe that's the uh, non-Soviet country that was being thought of. But let's get back to the war. We have a a Greek seer, apparently called Elpidius, who predicts that Ukraine will disappear from the political map of the world and become part of Russia. And what's more, that countries that oppose Russia will face great destruction and crop failures. Then there's an Indian prophet, Punit Nahata, who claims that the conflict is going to end in 2024 and after these Russia will enter a golden era. And the point is that according to many of these visionaries, what will need to change is the nature of the elites in Ukraine. So long as the current regime is in place, the war will continue and therefore this government will need to be overthrown to create peace in the region. Now look, on one level, this this is obviously absolute nonsense, a bit of fun. But it does speak to a growing mystic trend within, if not Russia as a whole, but I would say also Russia as a whole, certainly Putin's circle. And what's more, it's interesting that on the whole, 2024 is being presented as the crucial year, which is fine because what it does is it punts the whole issue back and it emphasises the... um, well one of the central elements of the, the regime's narrative which is that everyone has to dig in that this is the new normal that this is not just simply a, a brief little conflict and that society needs to adapt to I wouldn't say a permanent war fighting condition though that is frankly the implication but certainly for the moment that war has become the basic organising principle of the state but anyway back to the mysticism Let's have a quick break, and then I want to talk about just some of the ways in which occultism and mysticism seem to have become increasingly important in Russia, and what we might learn from that. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like – but you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash InMoscowShadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So I haven't helped but be able to notice that uh, a light motif of russian coverage not just of the war specifically but just generally any kind of russian news increasingly is acquiring this this slightly more sort of mystical line and by that I don't just mean the kind of overarching sort of geopolitical vision which relies on a sense that nations have a spiritual identity and a natural destiny and all that kind of thing, the passionarnos that, that Lyev Gumilyov sort of talked about. But just more generally, just simply psychics and mystics and prophecies and all that kind of thing just seems to be just cropping up a hell of a lot more. And even in some of the more unlikely places, I mean, I, again, I think I've touched on this in a previous podcast, but ever since 2019, the Communist Party. The Communist Party has included within its ranks the so-called Red Battle Magician, which to me definitely sounds like this, it needs to be a computer game involving that, Emma Reimann, who's a self-proclaimed esopsychologist, psychologist, and I still have no idea quite what an ESO psychologist is, and a TV personality, of course, with a sort of sideline in selling rejuvenating skincare products. Now, you know, she had been with 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 Yabloka in St Petersburg before moving to the Communist Party but particularly this year she's once again become much more sort of uh, visible in February for example she predicted that uh, her divinations had proven that so far the scales are leaning toward the fact that Kyiv will become part of Russia until 2025 Again, nice, handy, longer-term timeline. Until 2025, the situation will be extremely tense, and part of the Ukrainian territories will go to Poland. Again, that's, that's quite a strong theme we found within uh, Russian propaganda, is this idea that, in fact, Ukraine, which, after all, is not a real country, can and will be partitioned with Russia, Poland, and maybe even Hungary each sort of chomping a, a little bit of this uh, fake uh, patchwork land now in, in April it's just worth mentioning just as a sort of sideline she, she backed the communist candidate Alexei Chugin in local elections in St. Petersburg's Yuzhno-Primorsky ward now he lost to United Russia surprise surprise but these were actually quite strange elections um, in in Siela another ward of, of St. Petersburg, the Just Russia for Truth Nationalist Party candidate, Galina Simonenkova, was in the lead until the votes from a military unit in the nearby village of Khovojny were cancelled, and so United Russia's Ala Pavlova won. But she was especially helped by the vote from the local psychoneurological boarding school number 9, which seems to have voted solidly for her. So, United Russia winning because of the vote of a local asylum? I, I won't possibly comment. Anyway, to return to, to the occultism. You know, there's also the, the blind seer from Donbass, Nikolai Tarasenko, who apparently foresaw hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. But he told NTV that soon that there will be just simply no Ukraine. Zelensky is likely to be toppled by a coup And, once again, the country is going to be partitioned. Maybe the western part will go to Hungary or Poland, and the rest go to Russia. At the same time, he's convinced that America will also face a bad end, facing biological, climatic and social cataclysms, such that there will be no America as a state after all. Let's face it, if you're going to predict, predict big. More broadly, in March, we had a detachment of self-described combat magicians joining the fray and beginning a confrontation with Ukrainian witches, albeit from a safe distance through remote uh, working through maps and such like. Battle mages performed a ritual to lift sanctions and bring Russia's victory in the special military operation closer. So that that was in March. Uh, how, How well is that working? Now, according to them, the results actually were were clearly visible because the Ukrainian army began to lose battles, and Russian soldiers were being reliably protected from Ukrainian shells. Now again, you know what a shame we hadn't realized this, so presumably all those high Mars rocket rounds have been entirely wasted. One of the members of that detachment, one Svetlana Sapozniikova, said in a, in a video that was then published in in on telegram. When we saw that there was stuff going on in social networks, that Ukrainian witches were doing various rituals against our soldiers, we decided to unite and began to help too. Well, bless. But this is not just about witches, occultists and pagans. It's also actually, I would suggest, you know, pretty central to how the Russian Orthodox Church is framing part of its role in support of the state in this war. Remember, by now, the Russian Orthodox Church is essentially another state corporation. It just happens to deal in faith rather than gas, but it is every bit as controlled by the Kremlin and every bit really just simply another vessel for the enrichment of those involved. Anyway, back in May, the defence of the motherland was entrusted to the icon of Saint Seraphim of Sarov, Ooh, it's worth noting, I mean, actually, I was curious, I thought, I, I, I know nothing about St. Seraphim of Sarov, so I, I looked him up, and his, his claims to fame include that for three years he ate only grass. So, maybe he's actually a cow. Um, anyway, he ate only grass, and that one day, while chopping wood, he was attacked by a, a gang of thieves, who beat him mercilessly with the handle of his own axe. Seraphim didn't resist, Christian soul that he is, and was left for dead, and later actually testified in court on behalf of his attackers. So, I mean, this is very much the, the self-sacrificing generosity of spirit, which, let's be honest, Putin's regime is demonstrating every day at the moment. Anyway, Seraphim's icon was flown over territories in Russia that were potentially under threat from Ukrainian drones in order to ward off any danger. That was in May. So, you know, again, keep, keep, keep an eye out. If any drone, other drones happen, they are clearly Satanist attacks. But in many ways, this was really just a rerun of the way that during Covid, the Orthodox elder, with a splendid title, Schema Archimandrite, Ilyi Nosrin, who was actually the confessor to Patriarch Curiel himself, He flew over Moscow in a private jet to perform a blessing to protect Russians from coronavirus. And again, quite frankly, if these blessings work out so well for the Russian military in the war, as it did for the Russian population in coronavirus, then Ukraine has nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, a silver reliquary of Prince Alexander Nevsky's remains was handed over from the State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg to the Russian Orthodox Church as was the country's most famous icon, which had been in the Moscow Tretyakov Gallery, and that's Andrei Rublev's Trinity. And, and this in particular, I mean, did spark a lot of outrage, not least because of fears that the 15th century masterpiece would really suffer, unless it had proper housing and restoration work, something that uh, the, the Tretyakov is used to doing, not quite sure about the church. We'll see. There, there is actually a very interesting piece on the Carnegie website by journalist Xenia Luchenka that, again, I'll link to in, in the programme notes. And she said, There are many rumours circulating about the everyday mysticism that has taken hold amongst Putin himself, his inner circle, and the Kremlin elites as a whole. It's claimed that Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu supplies Putin with magical roots and that the two men visit shamans together and that officials rejuvenate themselves through baths with elk antlers. Journalists who were once part of the Kremlin press pool tell stories of how they were forbidden from stepping on Putin's shadow and how one of the deputy prime ministers I must say I'd like to know which one rescheduled meetings based on the advice of an astrologer. Now look, on one level this is all good fun, but I would say it is more than that. I mean, Consider, for example, the efforts made in October of last year to remove the bones of the famed 18th century Russian statesman and commander, and indeed favourite of Catherine the Great, Serenissimus Prince Grigory Patyompkin, from the occupied city of Kherson, before the Russians withdrew, and to bring it on to Russian-held territory. Now, one could portray this as simply the looting of historical artefacts, isn't there also an implicit mystical dimension to gathering the relics and denying them, denying these sources of spiritual power to the enemy? Or, look, at the very least, this is how some people are choosing to think in these terms. Because we have to stress the degree to which, for a long time, there has been an interesting, in parallel with the rising power of the Russian Orthodox Church, also a growing interest in various forms of mysticism in society, but also within the state. I mean, since 2008, after all, the government has actually been officially licensing anyone who wants to advertise their services as magic. And I'm not talking about prestidigitation and pulling doves out of top hats. So I I really do wonder about quite how the licensing procedure goes. If anyone has any idea how that does happen, do get in touch. But the point is, you, although you can claim paranormal services without going through the process, nonetheless, you do need to be licensed if you want to say that you do magic. And one might think that's just simply a way of stopping people from doing so. But according to the figures, and, and the latest ones, I'm afraid, going back to but 2018, but anyway, figures from the Russian Academy of Sciences, they record there are something like 800,000 faith healers and the like in the country, compare with 640,000 accredited real doctors. So this reflects, I would say, how there's long been a very strong stand, strand of mysticism among some of Putin's allies and, and supporters and indeed closest figures. A belief in all manner of weird parapsychology. From psychics, and remember, Security Council Secretary Patrushev, seems still genuinely to believe that a Russian psychic red U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's dreams, and from that divine that there was a secret Western plan to fragment the Russian Federation, and from that all the way through magic to aliens. Major General Alexander Komov, who's the Deputy Director of Federal Protection Service, the FSO, which is, remember, the, the Praetorian Guard, essentially, not just Putin's own bodyguards, but, but the Kremlin Regiment and such like. Anyway, so he's deputy director of the FSO, and he is reportedly known within the FSO as the Astrologer, which I'm not quite sure whether that's a cool nickname or not. Anyway, but, you know, he... A has that nickname because he frequents scientific seminars relating to the study of space but also things like ufos but also he consults all kinds of seers mediums and mystics for guidance on the future and on the sense of the paranormal threats from which putin must be protected now again here we're in the realms of the most kind of bizarre rumors but there are are all kinds of talk about for example that Putin's offices, you know, he famously has identical offices in his various official residences. So when he's doing his various video chats, no one can actually tell whether he's in Novo or Gardeva outside Moscow or his palace in Sochi or whatever. Um. Reportedly, there are uh, metal filaments all around these these offices to basically make them into what's called a Faraday cage to prevent... Unauthorized electronic transmissions in and out. And there's suggestions also that there are actually all kinds of mystic sigils also embedded to prevent remote sensing and other kinds of magical and psychic intrusion into his privacy. Now, I don't know if it's true, but on the other hand, it does sound like precisely the kind of thing that someone like Komov, deputy director of the service that is there for Putin's protection, might well insist upon. Now, to some, what this means is that Putin has descended into a kind of bizarre, parallel world uh, where desperation, self-deception, batshit mysticism, you know, all of these collide. Well, maybe, but I'd be, I be very, very careful about accepting that as read because we do have to rely, unfortunately, on this on some frequently recirculated but very, very weakly sourced accounts. I mean, like, for example, the fact that, that Putin bathes in uh, elk blood, but I'll come on to that later on. There is, however, you know, clearly a strong and continued fascination with the arcane. Now, in Soviet times, this was very visible even then, but it was sublimated into parapsychology. And the belief, which was exemplified in the thoroughly fictional, yet not totally implausible, National Institute for the Technology of Witchcraft and Thaumaturgy, coming in Arkady and Boris Trugatsky's excellent novel, Monday Begins on Saturday. Anyway, the belief was essentially that science could underpin and understand the mystical. Now, though, the resurgence of faith has also brought with it this occult dimension to Russian politics. And there's a difficult balance to be struck here. I don't want to suggest that the Kremlin has become some dark temple dedicated to unearthly powers, or that Putin aspires to elevate himself to undead god-emperor status by harvesting the souls of dead soldiers in Ukraine or the like. We don't really know what's going on in Putin's head, but we do continue to look for hints. And perhaps we could consider this apparent increased interest in the occult as a data point. Not that he's going mad, not that he's some kind of secret cultist, but rather that he is beginning to feel a certain desperation. Now maybe it is simply to be young again, hence the reported baths in the blood from chopped off elk antlers, which admittedly has certain shades of, of Countess Elizabeth Barthory, the late 16th, early 17th century Hungarian noblewoman who was accused of torturing and murdering hundreds of girls so that she could bathe in their blood to remain eternally youthful. But maybe it's also in a hope to, to tilt the balance of the world to make Russia great again. However, I don't honestly feel this really comes from Putin. Rather, I think we should see the roots of this in society as a whole. It is in part a continuation of the, the pendulum swing of culture, away from the ostensibly, if often questionably, materialistic, rational nature of Marxism-Leninism, even though in its own way this became as much of a cult as anything else, and you know, as if... Brezhnev had been living in a compound in the Midwest, stockpiling guns and surrounded by hunt by a hundred sister wives, but also this sort of manifestation of an overcorrection, of an overcorrection from this overly materialistic, which you know, will frankly ultimately resolve itself in due course. But even so, even back in 2013, Polary organisation Sreda estimated that 63% of Russians believed in astrology, fortune-telling or the, the notion of the evil eye. And that figure seemed to have only increased, especially of late. And I think this is the thing. It is situational, not just cultural. In March of this year, the business newspaper Vedomosti reported that online mysticism courses have experienced a nearly 20-fold surge in popularity, and that the cell phone operator Megafon had registered an 11-fold increase in traffic to websites offering courses in mysticism. Meanwhile, the online retailer Ozon reported a 95% increase in demand for amulets and charm bracelets, while its competitor, Wildberries, sold 105% more tarot cards between January and March 2023. There is clearly something happening. But what? Well, look, I tend to put this down to, to anime, that sense of cultural and moral disconnection, a breakdown of old values and understandings. In its own way, in its own sometimes thuggish but not always way, The Putin system and the society it spawned did work. It it did create a genuine national consensus for a while. Now that feels increasingly under threat. The confidence in the future, which was essential for the system and which once upon a time Putin could seem to offer, that sense the things were were okay now, but would be even better for tomorrow and for your kids, well, that is clearly harder to to sustain as real incomes fall and continue to fall as the war seems forever and this is unfortunately for, for for Putin the flip side of pushing back the victory date 2024, 2025 or whatever and also as the rhetoric of the regime becomes one of suffering and endurance and again I go back to Putin's speech on victory day this year which really offered no victories at all but just simply the need for suffering and Add to that, even the god Emperor Putin is ageing and maybe failing. Even their shared sense of the world is under threat. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look, amidst even or ever rather more prevalent and extreme propaganda, in which America is sending Ukraine drones packed with infected mosquitoes to spread malaria in Russia. And yes, that is a current story in which the country is at once in a terrible and existential struggle for survival and at the other time absolutely fine with KFC simply renamed Rostics and McDonald's of course, Torchner, tasty and that's that. Well, in this kind of a sort of a weird world, the boundaries of the rational, the real and the regular become blurred and even porous. What the hell do you believe in? Do you really know what's happening today, let alone have any confidence about the tomorrow? Occultism, it offers knowledge and agency. It rests on a conviction that there are deeper truths and secret mysteries. And that if you can properly interpret the signs that are manifest in the mundane world, you'll understand the hidden world and, more to the point, can then act on it. And for for an ordinary Russian, that may be to know when to get a mortgage because the tarot says so, or to make sure that your boy comes home safe from the front because you've given them magic charm to keep in their backpack. When elections are obviously rigged, when the news is such a mix of truth and lie that you can't really entangle the two, what do you do? You can just give up on trying to know, and indeed I'd note, for example, the diminishing viewership of TV news, or you can fall back on alternative sources of supposed truths. Look, I absolutely appreciate that there are many better indices of the declining power of the Putin system, its declining grip on the loyalties and the imaginations of the Russian people, its declining capacity to motivate them and to legitimate itself. Nonetheless, I do think that the rise of occultism within Putin's circle, within the elite as a whole, and within Russian society, is, I would suggest, an interesting little supplement to all the rest. Because in their own way, all of these are expressions of, or admissions of, a failure of the system. Came across a nice little quote, actually, about the rise of occultism and other sorts in, in Germany in the interwar period. and The power of mysticism is a mix of optimism and despair. Despair at the realities of the real situation. Optimism that when all the obvious avenues for improvement are closed, hidden ones remain. So what in fact we're talking about is a sublimation of the desire for change, which on the surface seems good for the regime that instead of protesting and organising and whatever else and trying to bring down the regime, you focus on changing some little element of it by some little incarnation, incantation, not incarnation, sorry, or going to see a fortune teller and acting on that or whatever. But on the other hand, what it does is it keeps alive a sense that things can get better, which is actually, I would say, crucial and in many ways corrosive of a system like late Putinism that depends on this notion of endurance and fear of change and suggesting that any change would be for the worse because one can you know the a belief that there can be change, even if sort of mystical and personal, can actually quite easily flip into something much more pragmatic, much more practical, much more real. I'm thinking about this and I'll close on this point. It reminded me of an Afghanist, a veteran of the Afghan war, whom I met in the course of my PhD research. And this was in Kyiv, and I first met him in 1989. And he was an absolute devotee of this man, Kashbirovsky, who was this famous hypnotist, who the idea was, you know, he would look out of the television screen and bring good things to, to all those people who genuinely believed and who committed themselves to to him, and as said, I mean, and look, this this guy was like so many veterans living an appallingly impoverished life. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he he fortunately hadn't suffered physical wounds in the war, but he clearly had PTSD. There was no real assistance for him. He was doing a particularly um, you know terrible job, manual labor and such like. But nonetheless, you know, he believed in this. Then I met him again in 1990, and he had become uh, a really dedicated, fervent supporter of Ukrainian nationalism, Ukrainian freedom from the Soviet Union, and particularly the Rukh, uh, you know, Ukrainian uh, movement. And when I asked him about it, you know, and, and particularly sort of whether he still was interested in, in mysticism and such like, you know, he openly said. Why do I need to care about trying to see another world when I realize that actually I can change this one? And for me, that was absolutely crucial. And I think it is is the point to, to close on, is that on one level, this seems like escapism, that current situation's terrible, no one sees any way out of it, whether we're talking about Putin stuck in a war that he's not going to win, all the way down to ordinary Russians who cannot meaningfully protest the state so long as it has control of a large and ruthless and effective security apparatus. So one can think, ah, oh, well, this is just the way in which you deal with your desire to pretend that you're doing something without actually doing something but the point is it does maintain this optimism which is absolutely crucial for any kind of future change and it was the survival of optimism in the soviet union despite the attempts of successive regimes to try and crush it that meant that when one had the liberalizing impulses of, of gorbachev it spanned so quickly out of hand well putin is not going to become a gorbachev i think of that I think I can be safely pretty confident. But nonetheless, that optimism is still surviving, in some ways cocooned within all this occult and mystical nonsense, but ready to break out of that cocoon as soon as it feels it gets a chance. So there you go. Occultism is optimism. There's a note on which to end. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter at Mark Gagliotti, or Facebook Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's Patreon.com/slash In Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.